Around the world, populations are ageing rapidly. There is currently more than 1 billion people over the age of 60 years, representing 14% of the global population. By 2050, this population will have more than doubled to 2.1 billion. With population ageing as the backdrop, a number of global challenges take centre stage, including rising rates of non-communicable diseases, recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic, the threat of future global pandemics, climate change, mobilisation of civil society and economic uncertainty. The United Nations Decade of Healthy Ageing, launched in 2021, represents a concerted action to prioritise healthy ageing and improve the lives of older people. Amidst the backdrop of the decade, now is the time to explore challenges and strategies to improve health and social systems that ultimately impact the function and quality of life of current and future generations of older people. My name is Jane Barrett, Secretary-General of the International Federation on Ageing. Join me, along with esteemed experts and colleagues, in a series of dialogues which aim to help reframe the intersecting challenges that impact not only the health and well-being of older people, but the way we all live and age. This is the Reframing Healthy Ageing podcast. Welcome to the first episode of the Reframing Healthy Ageing podcast. Over the course of this five-episode series, we will speak with experts and thought leaders across disciplines and sectors to examine the global challenges that contribute to the burden on healthcare systems, societies and individuals. These conversations will highlight strategies to create sustainable and resilient healthcare systems with a focus on improving the lives of older people and promoting healthy ageing. The UN Decade of Healthy Ageing focuses on four key action areas, changing how we think, feel and act towards age and ageing, developing communities in ways that foster the abilities of older people, delivering integrated care and primary health services that are responsive to the needs of older people, and providing older people with access to quality long-term care. Throughout this series, older people will be a focal point of attention with our guests to ensure that their voice is amplified in the context of not only the barriers, but also the solutions to prioritise healthy ageing across global systems. For this inaugural episode, the IFA was live and in person attending the Friends of Europe Health Policy Summit titled Green, Agile and Citizen-Centred in Brussels, Belgium. The Friends of Europe is the European think tank which aims to build a more inclusive, sustainable and forward-thinking Europe through connection, debate and idea generation. The 2022 Health Summit featured three key themes, 
changes in the role of individuals in health, the green transition and the demographic change in an ageing Europe. The Friends of Europe Health Summit provides a unique opportunity for international and local policymakers, civil society, patient representatives and industry to deliberate current and future health challenges that shape our society. The International Federation on Ageing was delighted to attend this summit and engage in these conversations with specific attention on ageing in Europe. Ms Tamsin Rose is a Senior Fellow at Friends of Europe. Tamsin has previously worked with NGO institutions and philanthropic foundations on advocacy and organisational development. As a former radio journalist and communications expert, Tamsin expertly facilitated the conversation on complex health and social systems issues. While at this summit, I had the opportunity to speak with Tamsin about the goal of the summit, the key health challenges that Europe is facing, and the importance of addressing these challenges at the European level. I'm delighted to be with today Ms Tamsin Rose from Friends of Europe. Tamsin, could you tell me a little bit about what is the key mission and outputs of the Friends of Europe Summit today? Well, thank you for hosting me on your, on your podcast. I think one of the things that came through very strongly is that we need fresh thinking, that our health systems were designed for a world that no longer exists. They were created 50 years ago and life expectancy was very different. The health profile of the population was very different. And we can't address the challenges of today, let alone tomorrow, by using the structures and infrastructures of the past. So the message came through very clearly, whether it's on citizen engagement, whether it's on the green transition or an ageing society, fresh thinking is needed. Did you get a sense from today's conversations about the need to connect some of these very particular situations as they relate to uh, demographic change? Absolutely. I mean, one of the biggest challenges we have is that health systems are seen as distinct and separate and they're managed by a health ministry. And yet everything that is long-term care or pensions or older people's rights, accessibility, is often dealt with by the employment or the social ministry. And two ministries often don't talk to each other. They have separate budgets. They report to different people and benefits for example, if you keep people healthier longer, then the, you should also get benefits to the budget, but those might go to the employment or social ministry. So there's no incentive for these separate silos to work together. But that fresh thinking we were talking to requires a dissolving of those barriers and connected thinking. One of the big themes was around carers, and it was a very interesting conversation from a European perspective regarding their new strategy. And what struck me was the relevance of the legislation. Um, it really feels as though member states are taking a step forward in investing in this particular area. Is that the sense that you got today? I definitely got the sense that an issue that was taboo to be discussed at European level, which was long-term care, is finally on the table. And of course, the pandemic played a big role. When we saw the huge numbers of death in care homes across Europe, we suddenly realised that our care system is not fit for purpose, it's fragmented and failing our most vulnerable citizens. 
So it forced a recognition. It forced what was called uh, the urgency creative fluidity of thinking. And that's what we need to do. I don't think we're fully there yet to understand and acknowledge that a fully functioning long-term care system is a public good and should be addressed with the same energy and focus that we give to healthcare systems. But we are a step on that path. Uh, technology played a big role in today's summit and I was really fascinated with, you know, the the concept of the mathematical modelling that was described when it comes to AI and the role that technology will have in the future. Do you think that will somehow impact, you know, the need for informal carers in the future? I think we have this deep-seated fear that it would somehow replace the human touch, that the future would be uh, a person who's old and frail and is surrounded by machines rather than the healing power of the human touch. So on the one hand, we want to reduce our costs and we want to be able to deal with some of the everyday tasks. But on the other hand, we don't want to lose that human connection, which we know is so important to mental well-being. You know, you said at the outset that, you know, ageing, you know, in Europe, you know, is front and centre in thinking of policy. You know, what drove Friends of Europe to actually have this as a central piece of the conversation today? Friends of Europe have got a commitment to what we call the renewed social contract. The reason that as a think tank that's looking at Europe and its direction of travel, the reason we're looking at health is we see that health matters to citizens. Mm. For them, it is the front line of whether their government is delivering their welfare system or not. It's health. Can you see a doctor? Are you being cared for? So if you have gaps, like we've seen with our healthcare systems, we have huge health inequalities in Europe, then for citizens, it doesn't feel like their government and Europe is there for them. So at Friends of Europe, where we're thinking about the direction of Europe, we feel that the barometer for whether Europe is delivering for citizens is whether they feel it is supporting access and quality of care to them locally where they are. So that's why we wanted to deal with it. Obviously, population ageing is a fact, but again, we see this gap between a recognition that we might need to reform our pension systems because our population is ageing and the lack of integration between health system and long-term care, which is why we wanted to shine the spotlight on that gap today. Mm. You're an expert moderator across sectors and across disciplines. What do you see as the three greatest challenges for society today? Well, I think population ageing is certainly one of it, but I would add to that intergenerational solidarity because for the generation of young people who are coming towards graduating today, they do not have the safety net that previous generations have, that there would be a pension for them. They don't have the kind of economic certainty that previous generations did. They're often priced out of the housing market, and yet we expect them to pay for all of the costs that we've occurred up until now, to pay for the costs of climate change, to assume the, the mantle and responsibility for caring, perhaps not just for one or even two generations above them. So I think it's not just the fact that our population is ageing, but we have a smaller pool of younger people and we're throwing more and more on their shoulders. And I think they're rejecting it. So if our society is going to remain cohesive and connected, we have to address this as an intergenerational solidarity issue. So I think that's the first issue. The second issue is, of course, climate change. We can't avoid it anymore. It's becoming clearer and clearer what that means. But to really tackle it, it means a fundamental rethink of the way that we organise our society, what we value, where we spend our time, 
what we invest in. And that is connected for me in the same way to rethink our health and long-term care. So if you put these three things together, which is an aging population that needs to be supported and maintained in good health, intergenerational solidarity to make sure that the young people of today have an economic path, that they're able to take on some of these responsibilities that we have left to them, and tackling climate change, which is a global rethink of what we do, how we do it, and how we live our lives. Though that's already the three biggest challenges I think we need to deal with. Mm. For those that are listening to this podcast, tell me a little bit about how we as civil society can help inform and follow the agenda of Friends of Europe. Well, we are quite unique amongst the sort of Brussels bubble think tanks by having a public-facing platform called Debating Europe. We have more than 6 million individual citizens who join our debates to discuss what should Europe do, what's important to you, what do you think we should be doing at different levels. So we encourage citizens to go onto our Debating Europe website and you can join in in a whole range of different debates and even initiate them yourselves. So we are try very closely to match what we think uh, citizens care about and what matters to them. Because as the name implies, Friends of Europe means we deeply believe in the European project, which is a project of and a direction of travel saying that Europe's future is together, it's integrated. Now we, we may be very different, but it's very clear that we have more to gain by collaborating than separating. So that's why we want to be as close as we can to the concerns of the citizens, because we see a, a growing divide between the elite decision makers sitting in the Brussels environment and what citizens care about. And you see that in political results of elections across Europe. So anything we can do to help bring people together has a value. So please go to our Debating Europe website and participate. And we will. So just in closing, Tamsin, thank you very much for being with us. What is your takeaway message for us today? I think if there's one thing I'd like people to think about, it is that ageing is a natural phenomenon. But ageing in poor health, in poverty and unsupported, that is not a natural phenomenon. That can be mitigated by choices and decisions that we make. And we can't bury our head in the sand anymore. We are all ageing. And we know now what we would want for ourselves when we're older. So we, we have to invest in making sure the structures and the choices are there. And thank you very much for being with us. The International Federation on Ageing was very proud to be part of the summit today and we look forward to further opportunities to collaborate. Thank you. We were delighted to have you on the panel today. The conversation continued with my next guests, Mr Sean Lybrand and Mr Stessy Yegemonis, who spoke about health and social system reform and strategies for advocacy and change. Mr. Lybrand is the Executive Director and Strategic Lead of Access to Healthcare at Amgen, a biopharmaceutical company with a focus on non-communicable and chronic diseases. Mr. Stessy Yagamanis is the Director of EuroCarers, a European network representing informal carers and their organisations across 25 countries. Today, I'm sitting in downtown Brussels with two colleagues, Sean Lybrand and Stacey Igamanis. It's a pleasure talking with you today, Stacey and, uh, and Sean, and we're talking you know, post the Friends of Europe Summit 
and the title of the summit was Health at the Centre of Society. So, Sean, tell me a little bit about yourself and where you are in your career. Thank you, Jane. So I work for Amgen, a biopharmaceutical company with particular specialties in cancer care, but also in chronic diseases like cardiovascular, uh, psoriasis, etc. From my current role as the Executive Director of International Healthcare Systems, and actually for the last number of months I've been in that role and focusing on Amgen's review of low and middle income country strategies and how we might be able to contribute to improved health and outcomes in those countries. From a background perspective, I have spent a long time in healthcare reimbursement, healthcare policy, particularly in the Australian context, but I also spent quite a number of years working in low and middle income contexts in vaccine policy. And that was particularly with regard to HPV, health human papillomavirus, rotavirus, pneumococcal, etc. So Sean, you know, your work really focuses around health system and health system reform. You know, in your experience, how difficult, easy is it to actually enact reform and what are some of the steps that, you know, we need to go through to ensure that that happens? Well, I think it's terribly difficult for government to enact healthcare system reform for a number of reasons. One is the the general short-termism of government budgets and where the outcome will occur versus where the investment is required. One that was raised today, which is interesting, is the lack of joined upwardness between the healthcare part of government, the economic and treasury part of care, and also in some cases social care. So an example was given today from Ireland, who are taking an approach to integrate both health and social care So that is an excellent opportunity for a government and a ministry to start to consider all of the costs and all of the outcomes that relate to health and social care. But of course, that couldn't be as effective without the integration of particularly Treasury, because Treasury is the ministry to which that minister will have to go and present their case. Uh, I have long thought that it would be much better if the finance minister or the minister for treasury actually went to the healthcare minister and said, here's the objectives that we would like to achieve as a country. How much money would you need and what would you need in order to achieve those? Mm. So really, it's a complex road and it needs many players that are really aligned in their mission and values. Agreed, agreed. So, Stacey, You know, after hearing that from Sean, I just want to congratulate you because you've spent the last eight years really advocating for a very important strategy that's just been enacted recently. Can you tell us a little bit about that strategy? Sure. So the strategy is the European Care Strategy. The idea is to set an agenda for all European member states to work towards the same goals in terms of uh, enhancing long-term care systems in ensuring that within those systems, the role of informal carers, which is the group I represent, informal carers being family members, friends or neighbours who provide unpaid long-term care to a person in their social environment. You know, the idea is also to make sure that these people are recognised and supported as they should be. What we heard though, that this is, um, you know, legislation, which is very, very unusual in this whole area of informal care. So what does the legislation really do for someone who is an informal carer? 
Well, legislation uh, based on what we observe across member states, because some member states are more advanced than others when it comes to the recognition and support to informal carers. Without you know, legislation, usually not much really happens. When it's left on the, the market or the community to you know, step in and do something about informal carers, usually not much really uh, happens. So we believe that legislation and now the strategy will be, uh, that will be a turning point in our movement. We hope it will be a turning point. And what we hope to see is better collaboration between informal carers and care professionals in the sense that informal carers should be seen and approached as partners in care. Uh, better support measures for informal carers, for example, um, through access to information and training, the validation of the skills they have acquired on the job, uh, the ability to access respite care, work-life balance solutions for those uh, who have to combine work and care, and financial support. Um, all of these measures are included in the strategy and we've been advocating for them to be discussed by policymakers for probably more than 15 years uh, now. So yeah, this is a big achievement. Mm. It's, a, it's a huge achievement and congratulations. It, you know, advocacy at that level takes a lot of players, but it also needs a champion. So I'm guessing that you're one of those champions. I now want to turn back to you, Sean, and talk about function, because a lot of our discussion today was around diseases. And it always needs, uh, you know, I move to this area of function because whether you've got cardiovascular disease or osteoporosis, at the end of the day, it's the services that are put in place that enable a person of certain functional capacity. Now, we talked about compressing morbidity today and the importance of NCDs and health promotion and prevention. To what degree, you know, is Amgen interested in this area to start off with? I would say that Amgen has a 100% interest in non-communicable diseases. As an organisation, we do not currently do any research in infectious diseases at all. Uh, I think, from my perspective and personally, the thing that we struggle with, with NCDs, and I'll talk about chronic conditions like cardiovascular disease, uh, diabetes, etc., is that health as it presents itself is the absence of care, i.e. if somebody is truly healthy, they shouldn't be going to the doctor, or at least in currently in the traditional model, they wouldn't go to the doctor. Why would I go? I'm fine. As opposed to what we have as sick care, which is ILTH really, which is the presence of care. So I really see the opportunity to blend the idea in terms of that compression of morbidity thesis from Freeze in the 1980s, which was one of my true favourite things that I ever did in health promotion, is to be able to help people engage with healthcare professionals to actually manage their health, to try to optimise where they might be with any of the particular things that they might have. And that's a combination of both personal care, if somebody is advanced in their condition, secondary care, and then it leaves tertiary care, hospitalisation and long-term care hopefully as far as possible to the end of life. As it pertains to, to cancer and to cancer identification here in Europe, but in many of the higher income countries in the world, there are established uh, screening programs that exist primarily for breast, bowel, prostate and uh, cervical cancer. 
there is a call here in Europe to expand the base of cancer diagnosis or of cancer screening to ensure that there are people who are able to benefit from those less common cancers at first. But then there's also countries in Europe who don't adopt all of those particular cancer care areas. Uh, to me, another way of ensuring your overall good health is to ensure that you're free of things that might be detected early enough to take a predict and prevent mm. approach mm. To, to proper care. Mm. So, Stacey, Sean has really set the scene around what good health system care could be, and it's really health and social care, isn't it? But we're now in the third year of pandemic that none of us thought that we would experience. You know, carers in your community were really at the front line. You know, what were the challenges that some of these carers experienced and were there any lessons that we need to learn about carers and this pandemic? Well, first of all, in fairness, it should be said that without the pandemic, probably we wouldn't be having this conversation and hmm. wouldn't have an EU care strategy. So the pandemic, to some extent, has been also a bit of a blessing, if I may be provocative, um, as they say, in other ways, the opportunity of a crisis. Uh, many of the challenges facing uh, informal carers um, were there before the pandemic. Um, what we see uh, across the continent, but, but I would even say at global level, is that when they are not adequately supported, informal carers face many challenges, and particularly women, because of course a typical informal carer is a woman, uh, in terms of their ability to access employment and good quality employment. Uh, that means, for example, full-time employment. So we, we have a lot of what we call involuntary part-timers as a result of caregiving. Uh, when it comes to young carers, which is um, uh, children or, or teenagers who are involved in provision of long-term care and these, uh, these uh, kids are very rarely um, captured um, in, in the data. It's also a question of their ability to access education, which of course is also an investment for our society, so it then turns into a bit of a vicious circle. Uh, we see a lot of issues in terms of uh, carers' social exclusion, who many of these carers are unable to carry out their normal social activities and therefore they feel isolated, they're completely disconnected from the social, uh, usual social network. In terms of poverty, many carers tend to contribute financially to the cost of, uh, of care. And last but not least, in terms of uh, their their personal health outcomes, both mental and physical health outcomes. Mm -hmm. And there again, that means that many carers may become patients themselves as a result of mm -hmm. caregiving. And so again, we, go, we come back to the idea of a vicious circle. Mm -hmm. So the pandemic, the way we see it, has been a bit, uh, has been a bit of a, an eye-opener for policymakers and society as a whole. Uh, it's certainly drawn more attention to, uh, to these challenges and to the, the, the role and the needs of informal carers. And now the strategy, as I said, includes many um, ambitions, at least in terms of the need to recognize and provide rights to informal carers. Now, obviously, the next chapter of our journey will be uh, to see how member states will respond to that. 
Are you optimistic about how member states will respond? Yes, to some extent we are, because we are already seeing how many ministries are already uh, you know, discussing, opening discussions with stakeholders, including some of our member organizations, uh, or um, proposing initiatives or putting in place uh, national or regional strategies, uh, so iterations of the UK strategy at their level. Where we are less optimistic uh, is the fact that um, the member states I'm talking about are part of the usual suspects. Uh, so, for example, Eastern Europe uh, and uh, Southern countries are still lagging behind when it comes to responding to the strategy and doing anything, quite frankly, about long-term care, you know, as a general uh, topic. Mm. Does that, has that impact in any way um, with migration, with the, the war in Ukraine? You know, have you experienced sort of changes in the, in the shape and form of carers, you know, in that particular region of Europe? Yes, but again, the war in, uh, in Ukraine is only the latest development in that, you know, in that ecosystem. Uh, migration has always played a central role in the provision of long-term care in Europe. Actually, many member states uh, also depend on, on legal migrants, but not only, let's face it, Italy, for example, is a country where, um, you know, uh, out of alternative options, many families will uh, hire someone on the grey or black market to take care of a dependent uh, person in the family. Um, and um, because the, um, uh, the problems and the demand is, is increasing so quickly, and probably it's going to take quite a few years for member states to, uh, to catch up and, in, and you know, do the necessary investments. Um, the, the EU care strategy also entails the need to maybe attract legal migrants um, to fill some of the gaps. Uh, and again, I think uh, we believe that it's a pretty bold proposal by the Commission, but it's a welcome uh, proposal mm. because definitely there's a need for that. Mm. Uh, so, in that con context, yes, um, in recent months, um, uh, we've seen migrants from Ukraine filling some of these gaps, but we believe that uh, many of these people are bound to go back to their country mm. once the war is over, and that will be over, um, hopefully, uh, not too far from now. Mm. And, um, yeah, so that's part of the, of the context, but uh, it's not... I would say it's not at the core not of central. the whole discussion, no, yeah. it's not central. So Sean, I'm going to take you back to your work in Australia and then I'm going to bring you forward to your new position. So you were instrumental in some very important um, programs that happened in Australia around osteoporosis and that took a lot of advocacy and influencing and shaping policy. So I want, I'd like you to speak to that, but then I want you to actually go to where you're working now and health system reform in lower and middle income countries. And are there any threads of lessons learned that you can take from Australia and put into you know, this region that you're working in now? I think there's definitely threads. Uh, so Jane, you're referring to the National Strategic Action Plan for Osteoporosis, which was... Uh, were recommended by the Australian government and has been funded in, in serial amounts as well. The, the important part about the 
action plan for osteoporosis is that it wasn't done by one individual. Uh, it was done by a serial collection of non-government organisations, academic institutions. Uh, Amgen was involved as a stakeholder in osteoporosis, but from the very much from the policy perspective, it was... It was something that happened at a moment in time, and I think it happened for a very specific reason. Australia had separated out the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Aged Care. Previously, though, it was health and aged care. And aged care was separated, and there was a particular politician who was head of that, Mr Ken Wyatt. Ken was, Mr Wyatt, was able to see that an aged care policy and the importance of bone health for the community as opposed to osteoporosis was very particularly in his ministerial domain. He asked for a meeting within the parliament to talk about the importance of bone health and osteoporosis and some of Australia's leading osteoporosis experts turned up. There was a very important moment to me as an observer where one of those particular physicians said to Mr Wyatt that it is not only women that are affected by poor bone health and osteoporosis, but also men. He said, yes, more women uh, become affected by osteoporosis, but when they have it, more men die from it. And I felt like that was such a turning point in how Mr Wyatt saw it because it wasn't half of his constituency. It was 100% of his constituency. So you said something before to Stacey is that the importance of having a policy champion for that particular action was there. Uh, the, there was a budget submission made upon Mr Wyatt's request, which was uh, organised by Osteoporosis Australia. The first one didn't succeed, but one of the other rules in policy change is that it is seldom the first or the best opportunity for policy change that is going to be enacted, but it is the compromise that comes that everybody can live with, and subsequently that is, that is what happened. So Australia is on that particular journey now, looking at the improvement of, of bone health in particular. So then as it comes to my current role, as I noted, I've been in this role for just a short number of months, and Amgen has decided formally to support a group within Amgen that focuses on low and middle income countries and particular access issues. Within that, we are taking a health systems strategy focus. Uh, as, as a biopharmaceutical company, if there are medicines that relate to a particular program, we will consider how we might supply them. So once again, we are doing this and proceeding down a path that looks to ensure that we sit within a broader stakeholder group. Uh, that includes non-government organisations, the list that I said before, academic institutions, other organisations. We look uh, very clearly to the NGOs in the LMIC area to consider where we might be able to add our voice to those particular approaches. Uh, one of our particular areas of interest will be in, in supportive care for cancer. At the World Cancer Congress relatively recently, there were a, a large number of presentations on treatment, cancer treatment, but precisely zero of the ones that I attended actually talked about the importance of supportive care for cancer outcomes. And those are things that help people stay on therapy, on dose at the right frequency. So in all, as I noted, I think there's a really strong thread. Not one organisation can ever deal with policy change on its own. Government has to be a willing listener for a start, and then they have to be willing to enact policy change and also see, see those uh, policy changes through. 
Look, thank you, Sean, because that leads me back to Stacey. Um, you know, Sean talked about, you know, it takes many players, you know, NGOs, academia, um, industry, government, and it also takes champion. So you're one of them, but who are they? Who are the other champions in getting this important legislation across? And are there any tips that you can share about successful advocacy? Well, first of all, thanks a million. But I, I see our role um, more as um, we are facilitators. Our job is really to establish links between people. And who, uh, who are the champions? All of us, as citizens, as voters. I mean, when we um, elect someone, we make a decision about the future we want for our societies. Um, so everyone should feel empowered and should pay attention to um, the value of health and I think again the pandemic in that regard has been a bit of a catalyst in terms of the way we uh, now all understand the slogan health is wealth mm -hmm. both uh, literally and uh, metaphorically. Um, some of us have lost family members as a, as a result of the pandemic so we know that um, health is a gift it's, it is an end in itself, but at the same time, we've seen our societies and our economies come to a standstill as a result of the, of the pandemic. So we can see also how health is a core driver of well-functioning societies. Um, so yeah, every time we discuss um, uh, as citizens the future of our societies, I think uh, to some extent, we also uh, discuss um, the health our societies and, and the way we're going to age mm -hmm. together. So before you assumed the position at Euro Carers, you had a lot to do with health inequity. In the context of carers today in Europe, you know, what are the challenges in reducing inequities, you know, for carers and those that they care for? Well, first of all, based on what I said before, uh, note that to some extent, uh, being an informal carer is already a social determinant of health. Because as I said, many carers as a result of their caregiving face negative uh, health outcomes. Now, we believe that care is a question of social justice um, and everyone can understand that providing um, equitable access to bad health uh, or bad healthcare does not make sense. Yeah. So we need to not only boost and enhance the quality of the care provided through our care systems, but we also need to make sure we maximize the health of our uh, populations. And how do we do this? By preventing, by in investing also in public health and in all the, all the areas that ultimately will have an impact on, on our health. And so that's what my previous job was about, looking at the social determinants of health and how policies outside of the health sector may ultimately impact on our uh, health outcomes. And if I take, a, I may take an example in the, the sector I'm, I'm active in now uh, with uh, informal care and long-term care. We are currently exploring, for example, the impact of fiscal policies on informal care. And so at first you may think, what's, what's the link? Well, the link is what we've come to realize is in many European countries, fiscal policies tend to favor the main earner in the family. And as a result, when it comes to um, the, you know, um, 
the decision about who in the family will take on caregiving responsibilities, well, uh, almost systematically it is women, so who are, remain, unfortunately, this, the, um, the second earner in the family, who have to uh, take on these responsibilities. So, what we're trying to highlight here is that if we are to support informal carers and if we are to improve our long-term long care systems, we also need to improve policies outside of the realm of care and caring. Look, thank you for that, Stacey. I just want to just return to the summit for just a moment and ask both of you, what are the key strategies and innovations that in your particular way of working and thinking will transform form the future of health and social systems? It's a very big question, but key strategies and innovations that will transform the future of health and social systems. So, Sean? I addressed the importance of innovation with respect to non-communicable disease as one of the questions that was asked. Another person said something that I was going to, which is that the long-term care strategy isn't just about older care it was also about education and care for children as well and I was going to make the point that there's a 60 to 70 year gap in the middle mm -hmm. that is something else other than care it's actually about maximizing health and by proxy also trying to maximize wealth mm -hmm. to me the importance of looking for ways to keep people healthy and in the workforce are going to be significant drivers of the potential to reduce the need on a long-term healthcare strategy overall. Mm. We know that populations are ageing. We know that often in many countries there is a lack of replacement of younger people. So one of the only opportunities is to keep people in productive work for longer. There was something I wanted to raise this with you, Stacey. I've written it down. You made a statement that you needed a portfolio of alternative options. And I was thinking about that through the lens of the carers who not only are not remunerated for what they do, there is no benefit of social pensions legislation that drives social pensions. And I maybe I can use this as a chance to flip back to Stessie is to yeah. say, where in a country implementation policy might it fit to consider not direct remuneration of individuals who are carers, but the ability to actually create a separate pension fund that rewards people for staying at home, at least, at least partially. It, it struck me that pension is where people miss out and the compound interest of pension over many years. Well, believe it or not, but in the few countries where um, support measures already exist um, that are targeted in informal carers, when there is financial support, which unfortunately is very often uh, extremely symbolic, so it's a very, very limited amount of, of money. Usually uh, attached to that, there is um, uh, social protection in the form of pension rights, mm -hmm. attached pen pension rights. So we're trying also to improve that and boost that across member states. Uh, there's a few good examples. Um, not many member states actually uh, take all of the boxes we'd like to see on, you know, at least the boxes we have on paper, uh, because we have our own uh, carer strategy, which we introduced at the European Parliament um, 10 years ago, probably. Uh, but many or growing number of member states start, you know, to take many of the boxes. 
if I take a few examples, Scotland is very advanced when it comes to the recognition of informal carers. Um, carers are definitely approached as partners in care. During COVID, for example, they were on the, um, the priority list for vaccination because the government uh, has realized that the important role they were playing in providing long-term care to those who needed it. In Finland, it is possible, for example, at, uh, at local level for uh, an informal carer to be hired uh, by the municipality. And so not only to receive a, a payment, a salary, but also again pension rights, uh, holidays, the work is monitored, so there's you know, quality criteria, uh, it's possible to take a break, uh, so through respite care to be replaced. So there's already a fully fleshed um, you know, uh, structure in place to support carers and we can learn from that. Uh, but what I, I meant when I said we need a portfolio is we need to maintain choice, uh, choice for all of us to decide whether we want to be involved in provision of, of long-term care and to what extent we want to be involved in long-term care because no, not all of us are fit to do that, and, and it's a difficult, it, it is a difficult job, it is a demanding job. Um, yeah, so we need to ensure that people have an actual, um, have an actual choice and are able to, uh, to de determine for themselves um, what they want to do or not. So informal care should not be imposed on people and it should not be imposed on women in particular. You know, I'm so delighted that this conversation has landed here because I couldn't agree with you more that, you know, that we need choice. And it's not choice out of, I don't want to do it, but it's choice out of, I don't have the capacity or trained skills to take care of my mother, brother, sister, father. Um, so I think there's, there's that to be said. But I think also that our learnings from Australia, you know, Carers Australia has been around for 40 years, I think. You know, we have a carers payment to care allowance and carer support groups, but that's a significant investment, you know, from the federal government and state governments. One question about informal carers, which always fascinates me, and that's the life of a carer. Because at some stage that life as a carer usually stops. Even if a mother who takes on the role of carer for a child who is profoundly disabled, that may end in some capacity when that, that child, adult child, you know, um, goes into a facility or dies. You know, what kind of work are you doing around this, the life of a carer? Because their identity of a carer is very solid and then they lose that identity. So have you sort of thought about that in your work? Well, our member organisations across Europe, so 75 organisations in 25 countries, um, are certainly doing that. And, and you're absolutely right, the transitions, um, you know, throughout the life or the life course of informal carers are very often difficult to manage and so they this needs to be supported as well. And so our member organizations are indeed providing support um, at the end of the, you know, of the, the care bout. Um, and as you said, it's, it's about um, maybe you're losing the person you're, um, 
we were providing care uh, for. So obviously that's already difficult to manage. But when um, most of your day was dedicated to the provision of care, suddenly uh, there's a big uh, there's a big gap in, in your life that needs to be uh, that needs to be addressed, and you need support, and, and, and you know, and, and that needs to be recognized. But it, there's also an, another side of that coin, which is um, you were talking about the parents of, of children with heavy disabilities, for example. Many of them are asking, uh, what happens once we're gone? You know, mm. what will happen with, mm. when we die? Mm. You know, who will take care of my kid and uh, will he or she receive the, you know, the quality of care we actually mm. would like uh, him or uh, her to receive? So these are big questions that are yet to be addressed at political level, quite frankly. Um, but our member organizations are doing the, their best, indeed, to accompany carers across Europe. Unfortunately, you know, very often with limited resources. Mm. And so there again, um, I would take the opportunity to say um, that also during the pandemic, but before that and since then, civil society organizations are playing a central role you know, um, not only to support, obviously, uh, informal carers, but also patients and the community. And, uh, and what we're seeing is that governments also tend to rely uh, more and more heavily on them, uh, but without really increasing the resources at their disposal. Mm. And so we need to also have a conversation about that, I think, mm. at some point. You know, the more you talk and the more that Sean talks from an industry perspective, there is a powerful coalition happening, isn't there? you know, industry, civil society, academia, and we need those connectors to actually influence policy. Sean, you, you talked about it, the many players at the table. You know, as we come to a close, I really want to come back to you both and say, what are you optimistic about in the future of health and social care reform? And what is the biggest challenge in your mind? Now, across this podcast, We've really talked around, you know, health and social care reform, you know, carers, you know, um, advocacy, um, the health summit. How do we come to this place of influencing and activating policy change? So what do you feel optimistic about, Sean? And what is the biggest challenge going forward? Well, I still feel optimistic that, COVID has provided an instructional lesson for systems to consider the importance of health as a driver of both health and of wealth. We have to acknowledge that COVID had nothing to do with health and all to do about ILF, but ILF being the opposite of health. The important point to note from COVID is that those people who are most affected had the greatest morbidity and the greatest mortality were those who had the poorest health in general with comorbid conditions. What that gives government and other stakeholders is an opportunity to focus on how do we address that particular component, maximise health for the population, as well as plan ahead for the next pandemic. We don't know when that's coming, but there will certainly be another health emergency of its magnitude, pandemic or not at some stage in the future. So that's preparedness. The area that I see as a challenge is the opposite of that, is that the fact is that this new healthcare crisis is at some undetermined time in the future. 
And with the relatively short budget cycle like attention spans for government, it may be, like happened with SARS, that research and funding will stop or commitments will stop just before the next pandemic. I recall vividly hearing a CDC researcher saying that their work was funded up until two years prior to the pandemic. So it's about thinking that all will be fine in the future. All will be not fine in the future. We are getting older and we are getting iller. So there is an opportunity for improvement there to make it full circle to optimism. Look, thank you very much. All will not be well in the future unless we are prepared. So thank you. Stacey? I'm optimistic by the fact that when it comes to the EU level and, and, uh, and EU member states, but I would argue by extension the whole continent because usually neighbouring countries you know, also get inspired by EU initiatives. Uh, we now have a clear or clearer mandate on long-term care with the EU care strategy and a clear commitment by all member states to at least work towards the same goals. We are also very optimistic that the strategy from our perspective, uh, ticks pretty much all the boxes that we wanted to see in it, uh, certainly when it comes to informal care. So that's a major milestone in our movement. Where I'm more concerned uh, is how we, go, we are going to finance the future of care without um, seeing some member states explore the commodification of care or the privatization, for-profit privatization of care as a potential policy option. Because obviously, uh, as a civil society organization, what really matters for, you know, to us is the need to preserve equity and universality of access to good quality care. And um, in that context, we know, um, you know, based on experience, uh, including in the healthcare sector, how the privatization, for-profit privatization of care, um, tends to undermine these, uh, these core values uh, and, and, um, and it tends to harm as well working conditions and the quality of care. So we are keeping a close eye on, on, on that uh, for the future, but yeah, I guess we need to remain optimistic still. So, uh... Look, we do need to remain optimistic. I think both of you today have really talked about working towards a common agenda and we found ex excellent examples. The National Strategy on Bone Health in Australia, you know, the unique policies mm -hmm. around carers in Europe. And these are indicators of success through common agenda and political will. I agree with you, Stacey. You know, financing, particularly in austerity times, is going to be a critical area to watch. And equally, Sean, this whole area of preparedness, which we failed abysmally at, and every country of the world seems to have just stopped short of investing prior to the pandemic. Thank you very much for the opportunity to talk with you today. And I look forward to continuing our work in this very important area. Thank you. Thank you, Jay. Thank, Thank you, Stacey. Thank you again to my guests, Ms. Tamsin Rose, Mr. Sean Lybrand, and Mr. Stacey Yegamonis. Our biggest global challenges are intrinsically linked to the health of society. Reform is needed across health and social care systems, which consider ageing populations and the informal carer relationship and network that support this population. 
intergenerational solidarity to support living in good health across the life course, and the looming power of climate change and its intersection with healthcare systems. This episode's dialogue highlighted the importance of a coordinated approach to enact change within governments, countries and even regions such as the European Union, which supports resilient health and social systems to maximise health and value across society. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Reframing Healthy Ageing podcast. To find more information on this episode and read the associated blog, please visit ifa.ngo. Let's continue the dialogue on healthy ageing. Follow, like and engage with us on social media at ifaging. See you next time.